Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we're met tonight in the name of our wonderful Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, I want to thank you for the congregation of the righteous tonight, that we are your people. We're not the devil's people. We're not the people of the world. But we are your own, your very own people. And thank you that we are a royal priesthood because you've made us such. And we are precious, wonderfully precious, because we belong to Jesus. And Father, I just thank you that Jesus is king over all the earth. I just thank you that he is the monarch reigning in the universe. And we just joy in the wonderful fact that the day is coming and soon when his feet shall tread again upon this earth and the whole earth shall proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord and king over all. And Father, we just thank you that in the Bible, in the Word of God that you have given to us, there are so many passages which deal with the time when he will be back on this earth. And we thank you that you've left them there because you know that they're important for us to study. Oh Father, I just pray in Jesus' name that all the things that are studied tonight may become life to us, that your Holy Spirit will take them and illumine them, that we should get enlightenment from them, and Father, may our hope just be quickened within us. May our heart just be, oh, speeded up just a little bit more by the things that we study together. And Father, may all of us come to the place where even more than we've done in the past, we will bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord and that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are beyond any ways that we have. Father, tonight we ask that your Holy Spirit will come upon every person in this room, that we should all know your anointing, and that you and you alone may speak tonight. In the name of Jesus we ask it. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. We are dealing with the time when the Lord himself will return to the earth, when his feet will stand upon this planet earth, and when he will establish his reign over the whole realm and over every kingdom on the face of this earth. You remember last time we saw the five stages in the restoration that the Lord puts into operation. As soon as he comes back, he immediately has to renovate the earth. Satan's ravaged the earth, the fall has ravaged the earth, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself comes back and he starts reversing the effects of the fall of Satan and of Adam. We saw five stages in the restoration. You remember what they are, I hope. First of all, we saw that he removes Satan. You can't have perfect environment with Satan around. And so the first thing he does, he removes Satan from the earth. And Satan is locked up for 1,000 years. The next thing he does is this. He removes all unbelievers from the face of the earth. There is judgment, and the unbelievers are removed. Next, he pushes back death. He doesn't abolish death. That comes a little later on, but he just pushes it back. And the fourth thing is he establishes what I normally call PE on the earth, perfect environment on the earth. And we saw last time some of the effects that this will have. We saw that the wolf and the lamb will lie down together, that most of the animals who've been ferocious will suddenly lose their ferocity and that they will eat grass just like an ox eats grass. We found that there was perfect climate all over the earth. We found that 
the lifespan of humanity is expanded. And then the fifth thing that we saw, and we just focused on Israel, was that the geography of Israel and the geography of Jerusalem was dramatically changed. Now, with all of those renovations put into operation, we then come to the time when, of course, people start living on the face of the earth. At first there are only believers, but soon they start having children, and soon these children grow up and they reach the age of accountability where they have to decide for Christ themselves. And after 1,000 years, you have a vast population here on the earth, not all of whom have accepted Christ. We don't know how many do accept Christ, we don't know how many don't, but there's quite a number, and I think the implication in the Bible is it's the majority who have not accepted Christ by the end of the millennium. But they grow up in this perfect environment. And tonight, I want to actually outline the type of society that Jesus establishes on the earth in the millennium. But before we do, I want to answer a question which undoubtedly by this time has come to your mind. Uh, Most people tend to be a bit self-centered and they're much more interested in asking, ah yes, that's lovely to know what's going to happen to them, but what's going to happen to me? in all of this. And undoubtedly, most of you will have thought, well, what actually will the church be doing during the millennium? And to answer that, I want to have a look at a number of scriptures. In fact, there are three main scriptures that deal with this subject in the New Testament. So let's begin tonight, not on the main subject, but on this uh, little question that has come up. And let's go to the book of Revelation and chapter 3. So I will begin the book of Revelation and chapter 3. Now, in chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation, you have letters to the churches. We haven't dealt with these at all. In fact, this will be a separate course altogether to deal with these. But these are written to the church which was in existence in about 96 AD, that's 60 years or so after Christ had died on the cross. And... God is actually making an appraisal of the local churches. You'll notice, by the way, in every case, he does not write to the church as a whole, but he writes to the angel, that is, the messenger of the church. That would have been one of the elders who was open to receiving the voice of God. And he writes to the elder in the church. This is a vital principle. You'll notice he doesn't give this out in a word of prophecy in the meeting, you know. He doesn't stand up and then all of a sudden rip the church to pieces in front of everyone. If he had done that, there would be people in the church who would be sorely damaged by the prophecy that would be given. He writes to an individual who will submit this to the eldership of this particular church and they would then pass it on in the form that they felt was right to the church as a whole. And by the way, that is the reason why if there are things going on in this fellowship or any other church that you may attend and things that you think are slightly off-beam, it is not right to stand up in a meeting and tell everyone what you think of that particular church. If you do that, or if you do it to even a group within that church or fellowship, you are nothing but a troublemaker. You will actually damage the saints of God. There's only one meeting you should actually have your say in, and that's the elders' meeting, you see. And if the elders or the people in charge of the church are are good and open to the Lord, they will take what you have to say, they'll pray about it, and they might even say, we think you're right. And then they will take steps 
to correct what is wrong. And so the Lord speaks to the messenger of the church, and he will have the job of passing on the message and correcting the church where it is wrong. Now, many people don't understand these letters because they, they don't understand what had happened to the church in the 60 years from the time of Jesus Christ. By the time that these letters were written, the church had become a very mixed group of individuals indeed. You had some, and the majority probably, who were born again and really moving on with God. But you also had quite a large minority who were simply religious. They weren't born again. They just thought that uh, Christianity was quite a good idea. And they'd come in and they were sort of mingling in the midst together. And you'll notice in these letters that he seems to address two groups of people. He addresses the real believers and the other people as well in the same letter. And in this last letter to the church at Laodicea, he does a lovely thing. He actually preaches the gospel to the church. In verse 20, we have a verse which is used in a lot of evangelistic meetings. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Have you ever wondered why this is given in a letter to a church? It's not given to a letter in a letter to unbelievers, but to a church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. And there is a gospel appeal to those who are religious but don't actually have a personal experience of the Lord Jesus Christ in the church. Things have got a bit sloppy around. Now in verse 21, we have a very interesting verse. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am sat down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And can you see, we have a lovely verse here, because he's actually saying, to those of you who overcome, I'm going to share my judgment. Remember, the Father was the one who had the absolute rulership in the Old Testament. But John 5 tells us that he has set up Jesus to have his authority and to be the judge over all men. And that's what's meant in the last part by saying, when he says, even as I, Jesus, also overcame and am sat down with my father in his throne. So in other words, he now has the authority of his father to judge. All right, what does the top bit mean? Well, to those who overcome, look, I will grant to sit with me in my throne. In other words, you are going to have a capacity of rulership and you will reign with Christ when he reigns. When the rapture of the church occurs, we are taken up to be with him, and it says, so shall we ever be with the Lord. And when he reigns, you reign. But what about this overcomer's bit? Now, as soon as you read a passage like this, you always get certain people who pull out their overcomer's sermon, you know, and out it comes. And the, the gist of the message is this, you're saved by grace, but you've jolly well got to work for it. And that's the message. In other words, you've got to sit there, yes, oh, praise God, you're saved, but now you've got to really fight and battle through and overcome, and if you don't overcome, I don't know what's going to happen to you. It's going to be awful, terrible. You see, that's the type of message that is actually given out. There are more Christians in mental hospitals today because of overcomer messages than any other messages. I think they even outnumber those who... Um, uh, go into mental hospitals after hearing about the possibility of losing your salvation, you know, which, by the way, is also unbiblical. 
And we have to look at this and say, well, okay, who are the overcomers? Well, the man who wrote this book, or penned it, rather, John, actually defines it for us. And so let's turn to 1 John, written by the same author, 1 John 5, 4 and 5, and we'll find out who the overcomers are. This will be a great relief to some of you. I know many people who, like myself, when we were first saved, we did not find overcoming easy in our lives. And the more we tried, the more we seemed to be defeated. But praise God, the more we came to know Jesus, the more he established the victory in our lives. Um, 1 John 5, 4 and 5, and this is clear, and this defines an overcomer. For whosoever is born of God overcometh the world. Lovely. Whoever is born of God, why, you're an overcomer, automatically. And then he says, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. In other words, the moment you put your faith in Christ, you overcame the world. Automatically it happened. And in case you're going to twist the last phrase, he then goes on in verse 5 and he says this, Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? And therefore what this means is that tonight you don't have to look at your life or at your feelings to decide whether you're an overcomer. You can look at the Word of God and look at your faith. And the question is, have you believed in Jesus Christ, the Son of God? If you have, what this says is, you are an overcomer. And that means that all people who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ are overcomers, automatically. And it means, therefore, that you will reign with Christ. Now that's what you're going to do. You're going to reign with Jesus Christ for all eternity. All right, but we learn a little bit more from another verse. Go to the book of 2 Timothy, and chapter 2, and verse 11. And this is lovely. Remember, of course, that the early church suffered tremendous persecution. Many of them died for their faith. And they used to cheer themselves up with hymns. And it's lovely here because Paul actually quotes, probably, one of the hymns that they used to sing in those days. And verse 11, 12, and 13 are taken from an early Christian song. That's why he says, verse 11, it is a faithful saying. In other words, whoever wrote that got it absolutely right. And he quotes it. 2 Timothy 2, verse 11, it is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. This means, of course, that we died in Christ, we shall also live. But to the people of that day, it was wonderful. Well, if you die, guess what? You're dead to the world, but you're alive with Christ. Why? That would have spurred many of them on to martyrdom, you know? Many of them would have said, well, surely it's far better to go to be with the Lord, isn't it? Yes, to live with him for all eternity. So that's the first statement. Verse 12, then, is important. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. And this verse is absolutely crucial because it shows this that whereas Revelation 3 shows us that we'll all reign, here 2 Timothy 2.12 shows us that we won't necessarily have the same degree of authority. Here what it's saying is that the degree to which you suffer is the degree to which you will reign with Christ. And, for example, today you find that uh, there are people in government, they all have a different department, the department's a bit different sizes, they have a different amount of authority. The Chancellor of the Exchequer has more authority than the Minister for Arts, for example. And so it will be 
in the reigning that we do. And this, of course, comes into the whole category that we've studied before as far as the judgment of believers' works are concerned. God will one day evaluate the works that you've done for him and he will give you a reward. And part of the reward will be authority in rulership. You see? If you suffer with Christ, you'll also reign with him. And that encouraged the early church enormously. Well, we're suffering with Christ. Well, hallelujah! Because as sure as we're suffering with Christ, we're never going to reign with Christ. All right, the next bit. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And most people, of course, reading that say, oh dear, if ever you deny Jesus Christ, then the day will come when he'll say, I never knew you, and I'll deny you. It does not mean that. The word deny, of course, means denial as far as giving things is concerned. For example, uh, if your son doesn't do his chores around the house and he denies you the uh, value of his labor, then you will deny him the pocket money that you will give to him. And you have a type of relationship, you know. Well, if you won't do that, then I won't do this. And what this is talking about is this. If we should deny Christ what is his in our lives, He will deny us. This is loss of rewards as far as believers are concerned. And there are some believers who will lose rewards because they have denied uh, what the Lord has wanted as far as their lives are concerned. And verse 13 is then added in case you thought that verse 12 was about salvation. Look what it says. If we believe not, this must have been great comfort to those who thought they'd be thrown to the lions, you know, and thought, will I be able to do it, Lord? You know, how am I going to get through? And this is a lovely verse. Well, he says, if we believe not. In other words, should you just chicken out at the end? Well, he says, yet he abideth faithful. And the reason he abides faithful to you is this. He cannot deny himself. And he's saying here that all believers are the inheritance of the Lord. You see? We are the inheritance Father's given him. And he's not going to be denied of you, not at all. He's going to come into all his inheritance. That means every last man and woman of you. Praise God. And this was a a song that was sung to comfort and to give strength in those early days. But do you see, if we suffer, we shall also reign. And I'll tell you this, in the move of the Spirit that we are in, it is a hard walk. There are people who suffer. Many think when they come in, oh, it's all going to be wonderful, hallelujah, great. No. There is suffering and endurance needed in the Christian life. But beloved, if you're suffering and enduring, then praise God, if you suffer, you will also reign with Christ. All right, that's an important verse. And then let's go on to the third verse I want to take, which is found in Luke. Luke 22. Luke 22. And this gives us a clue as far as the jurisdiction we will have is concerned. Now we've got to be careful that we don't say too much because not too many details are given, but I think we can glean a number of details. Luke 22, verse 29, this is said to the disciples, but to the disciples who were going to become members of the body of Jesus Christ. These disciples lived through the day of Pentecost and are today part of the church, part of the church now, of course, in heaven. Verse 29, and Jesus says to them, I appoint unto you a kingdom, he says. Now the word kingdom doesn't only mean a plot of land, what it means is 
a royal rulership. I appoint unto you a royal rulership, he says. In other words, the right to reign. And then he says, as my father has appointed unto me. And he defines then the reign that these twelve will have. Verse 30, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, of course, in the millennium, these people will be in resurrection bodies. But you remember when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose in a resurrection body. And do you remember what he said? He said, hey, give me some food. I want some fish, you know, piece of honeycomb, please, just to prove I'm a real person and not just a spirit. And in the same way that Jesus ate, so these people are going to eat in the millennium. I don't know whether they need food or not, but they'll certainly be able to, to partake of food. And he says that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So while Christ is reigning in the millennium, the church is also reigning and over a specific area of the earth. It may be that you will have to reign over part of the country that you've actually come from. We just don't know. But there it is. It is this reigning and rulership. Now that's the top of the the authority in the millennium. We have Jesus who is king and all around Jesus then the royal family which is what we will be in the millennium the church. Alright? So Jesus and his royal family reign supreme in the millennium and you will be reigning for 1,000 years with Jesus Christ. Well while we started on this let me just fill in the rest of the authority as far as we can can glean it. Here's the top of the scale. Let's now go to the bottom of the scale, shall we? Living on the earth in the millennium, there are ordinary human beings. And these human beings are arranged in national groups and they have kings over them, human kings over them. And Israel, you know, is going to have a human king. Except the kings aren't called kings, they're called princes. You see, why? Because Jesus is the king. Um, to show you the prince, that there will be prince, and in fact a whole group of princes over Israel, let me just show you a passage. Go uh, to the book of Ezekiel, and you remember Ezekiel 40 to 48 deals with the millennium. Go to Ezekiel 45, in the middle of that section, and let's have a look at this, uh, the mention of rulership here. Just a few verses, and I'm not going to comment on them. Uh, verse 9 of Ezekiel 45. Thus saith the Lord God, Let it suffice you, O princes of Israel, he says, remove violence and spoil and execute judgment and justice. In other words, they will have authority in the land of Israel in the millennial reign of Christ. These are ordinary human beings in a position of rulership. Here it's princes, this is the ruling family, as it were, in Israel during the millennium. But there will be a prince over the nation. And you'll find him, for example, in Ezekiel 46. The prince shall enter by the way of the porch of that gate without and shall stand by the post of the gate and the priest shall prepare his burnt offering. I'll be dealing with the offerings a little later on tonight. But do you see mention of a prince here? Okay, so what does that show us? Right at the bottom, we have human, ordinary human beings 
and they have princes over them. So there's a prince. So there's the Jesus and the church at the top, uh, human beings with human princes over them. And let's see if we can fill in this gap in between. Well, actually, we can because we filled it in last week. Let me just tell you how we fill it in. It's quite easy. Uh, last week, we saw that at the beginning of the millennium, Old Testament saints are going to rise. Do you remember that? And tribulational saints are also going to rise. And it is promised in Revelation 20, verse 6, that they will reign. Now, I, we don't have time tonight to go to some of the scriptures, but some scriptures show clearly that King David himself is going to rise from the dead and he will reign over Israel. Now, he's an Old Testament saint. He's going to be in his wonderful resurrection body. And so, what does it show us? Over the human princes, we have Old Testament saints who are also given jurisdiction. And, as we saw from Revelation 20, verse 6, we have also the saints who came out of the tribulation. They will also reign. Now, that's the type of order of authority that we have. We have Jesus Christ and the royal family tops. Below those are the Old Testament saints and the tribulational saints, and they are over the human princes who are then over their land. And they'll have different capacities and different jobs to do. We know very little else, but that's the type of order that there seems to be. So what are you going to be doing in the millennium? Why, you're going to be reigning with Jesus Christ. And you will have responsibility for a particular area, and uh, you will actually go and be in a position of jurisdiction over the earth. Fine, with that question answered, let's now go on and see the type of society that exists on the earth. In other words, how the human beings are governed and what type of laws they, they live under. And to see that, uh, we go to a wonderful passage. The passage is found in what are called the minor prophets. Whoever invented that term minor prophets ought to have been strung up. They are called minor prophets because they're shorter than the major prophets, but their message is far from minor. It's major, you know. So let's turn to the major minor prophets, or the minor major prophets, whichever you would like. And let's turn to the lovely prophet called Micah. Micah. And it's worth uh, putting your finger in the place because this will be our base passage and we'll be coming back uh, to this section. The book of Micah and chapter 4 by the way, don't feel ashamed to look it up in the index if you can't find it. Micah and chapter 4, beginning verse 1. In this passage, Micah 4, 1 and onwards, we have a passage which you will have read elsewhere in the Bible. In fact, we saw verse 1 at the end of last week's Bible study in Isaiah chapter 2. And you can either turn to Isaiah 2 or Micah 4, they're exactly the same. And there's a big debate, by the way, as to whether Isaiah copied Micah or whether Micah copied Isaiah, and I like to think that Isaiah copied Micah. That's the way round I like to go. All right, let's have a look at it and go through, and this is our base study. Beginning verse 1, and we've seen this verse already, it deals with the geographical changes in the land of Israel. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top 
of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. In other words, that where the Lord reigns is going to be exalted, and we found out, to remember last week, that the whole of the rest of Israel is going to be turned into a plain. And the place where Jesus reigns from is going to be seen from every part of Israel. Well, that's the statement there. And at the end, and the people shall flow unto it. The word flow here is a Hebrew word that is used of a spring that bubbles up. There's no effort to it. The water wants to come up. And this means that there will be people on the face of the earth, they'll want to come up to the house of the Lord. There'll be no effort, they... It's going to be wonderful. They would love to dwell in the house of the Lord. All right, verse 2. And many nations shall come. I'll be commenting on that little word nations in just a moment. Many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the law from Jerusalem. And people who want information about God and about the way God thinks, they will go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be the Bible teaching center of the world. Anyone who wants to know about God will go automatically to Jerusalem. And here's the wonderful thing. The Jewish nation are going to be the teachers of the whole world. They were in the Old Testament. That's why God raised up the Jewish nation in the Old Testament, to teach the Word of God, to go out and evangelize the world. They failed in it. But in the millennium, they're going to be restored to the position that they had. Keep your finger in the place. Turn to Zechariah and chapter 8. And let me just show you this lovely verse. Zechariah 8 and verse 22 and 23. Israel in these days, of course, will occupy the whole of the land that has been promised to Abraham in the Palestinian covenant, as it's called, uh, from Genesis. Right? I think we dealt with that in uh, uh, Does Israel Have a Future? They'll be in the whole land that was promised to them. And look what it says. Zechariah 8:22. Yea, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem, and to pray before the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, In those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. And wherever the Jews go, a whole crowd of people collect round them and say, We've heard God's with you. And he says, You're quite right. And so he'll lead them up and he will give them the information that they need and show them the way to receive more information. Now, this is Israel restored to its former capacity uh, of uh, propagating and broadcasting the word of truth. All right. I suggest you also keep a finger now in Zechariah. We'll be coming back to Zechariah. But turn back to Micah, and that's verse 2, and then on to verse 3. Now, verse 3 is a fascinating verse, and I want to take it in, in two sections. So, verse 3, part A, first. And he, which refers to the Lord, shall judge among many people 
and rebuke strong nations afar off. This is not a reference to the judgment which occurs at the end of the tribulation. This is stating the fact that in the millennium, Jesus Christ himself will judge all the people who are on the earth. Now, why should he judge them? Well, because they'll be doing things wrong. Now, I've got a shock for some of you who have wrong ideas about the millennium. There are some people who think that in the millennium, everyone's perfect, you know? That no one's a sinner, that no one sins at all. And they're quite surprised when they read a verse like this, that Jesus has to judge in the millennium. Yes, he does. Because people still break his law and still commit sin in the millennium. What? Say some people. Still sin, but I thought you said that the devil was locked up. How can they still sin with the devil locked up? If any members of our fellowship are saying that, my comment is, have I been so long with you and still... <laughs> You do not understand these things. Sin does not come from the devil. Sin comes from the human heart. Men and women sin because they're fallen beings and because they've got an old sin nature. It's nothing to do with the devil. Oh, he stirs it up a bit, of course. He loves it. He puts every temptation in your way possible. But my beloved brothers and sisters, it's you that says yes to the temptation. I really do think that many Christians have uh, blamed the devil for all types of things that he was never guilty of. I still meet Christians who act as if the devil's got more power than the Lord's got. They talk about him far more than they ever talk about the Lord. They're always giving him the glory for this and the glory for that instead of actually living in the victory that is in Christ and dwelling in that victory and putting their foot down about that victory. Oh no, they'd much rather put their foot down about the victory of the devil. You tell me it's not the devil, I say it is the devil. You see? And they'll say, this is the devil, it's definitely the devil, and off they go, you know? I really think that if I were the devil, I'd be uh, uh, filing quite a number of lawsuits against Christians <laughs> at this moment for defamation of character. And I think it would be quite just as well. I should imagine he can point at most Christians and say, they blame me for that, it was nothing to do with me. Father... You know, God the Father, when are you going to deal with these children of yours? They're always gossiping about me and maligning me. You know? And so they do. The devil's locked up, but beloved, the old sin nature marches on. And these people who live in the millennium are still fallen creatures, and they still sin. And because of that, God has to have laws in society which these people have to obey. All right, well, let's have a look at some of these laws and let's have a look at the type of society that God creates on the earth. It's a very interesting type of society and one that we don't have on the face of the earth at all today. It goes by a wonderful title. It's called a theocracy. T-H-E-O-C-R-A-C-Y. It's a theocracy. Theocracy simply means God rules directly. God rules directly on the face of the earth. Now, when we look around our planet today, you'll find there are many different types of society. And they've all got different laws, and they've got different ways of dealing with miscreants, you know? And uh, uh, we have to look at this and, and see the type of laws that a the theocracy has. We live in a constitutional monarchy. 
Others live in a republic. Others then live in a totalitarian system. You know? A dictatorship or a communist society. And there are, of course, today some Islamic fundamentalist groups. They've all got different standards of morality. In Saudi Arabia, you're not allowed, for example, to dabble in alcohol at all. If you do, you will be most harshly dealt with. In England, you can dabble in alcohol. You see, that is part of our law system. There's nothing wrong. Uh, in some Arab countries, you can drive like the clappers and they'll never say anything about it. In Britain, you're not allowed to drive like the clappers, not officially allowed to drive like that. And if you continue to do so, sooner or later, some good, kind policeman, the minister of the law, will come up and uh, he will actually correct you, you see? It's different laws and different standards. We have different ways of dealing with miscreants. In this country, if you break the law, then you either are fined or you have an endorsement or you go to prison or something of that sort. In Saudi Arabia, you're likely to have your driving foot cut off, <laughs> you see? Or something like that. Your foot cut off or your hand cut off or you might be whipped or even your head cut off. That's the type of law. Every society has different laws and has different punishments that are given out when the law is broken. So what about a theocracy? The only theocracy we've ever had on the earth was established to Israel, with Israel. And the book of Deuteronomy actually expresses the laws of God for the nation of Israel. And you remember, don't you, that they flunked it. Right? The nation of Israel didn't like being directly answerable to God, and so they decided they wanted a king. They wanted to become a monarchy. You know, we didn't like being a theocracy. We want, to, we want to be a monarchy. And so they rejected God from being king. In the millennium, the theocracy is re-established. And it has certain laws. All right? And I think what we ought to do is have a look at just some of these laws and uh, see the type of system that uh, is, is brought in here. So let's, first of all, see uh, Zechariah and chapter 14. Right? Zechariah and chapter 14 and verse 16 and onwards. Now remember Jesus is king of the whole earth at this time. He's the head of state. And in verse 16 we have an oath of loyalty that all people have to take every year, once a year. This is equivalent of saluting the flag, all right, in, in the United States of America. And they have to do this once a year, whether they are believers or not. Remember that in the millennium, believers and unbelievers live in the society and they're under God. All of them are. He's the head of state. In the way that in Britain today, whether you are a monarchist or an anti-royalist, you all have to live in this constitutional monarchy at the moment. The day may come when it won't be a monarchy anymore, God forbid, as far as I'm concerned, but the day may come, well then the rules will change. But as it is at the moment, you are under a monarchy. So, verse 16 tells us of an oath of allegiance. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem, that's the Battle of Armageddon. Some nations won't survive at all, but some nations will. And those nations go through, they people the earth. So he says, of all those nations that survive, then I require this, 
that she shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And once a year on the Feast of Tabernacles, a representative or a group of representatives from every nation on the earth have to go to Jerusalem and have to take part in the Feast of Tabernacles. Right? The Feast of Tabernacles, by the way, simply looked forward to the day when God would actually come and tabernacle with human beings. And that's why in the millennium, this is the oath of loyalty uh, because God is living with men now. Alright? And so it's the Feast of Tabernacles that is the obvious one that everyone has to come and has to celebrate at this time. By the way, there are some people, and I think they're right, who believe that Jesus Christ, when he was born as a baby, was born on the Feast of Tabernacles. He came, as it says in John, and tabernacled amongst us. And he took on a human body, a tent, as Paul describes it, and he came to live on this earth as a man. Well, here, the Feast of Tabernacles is kept every year and representatives from every nation go up to Jerusalem and keep it before the King of the earth, who is Jesus Christ. And if they fail to do that, then there's a penalty. Now, let's have a look at the penalty. Verse 17 and verse 18. And it shall be that whosoever will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. Now, I'd like to see our present law trying to enforce something like that. Well, Mr. Price, you've broken the, you know, you've broken the speed limit, and so there's going to be no rain on your garden all year. Well, they can't do it. But Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of the whole earth, he can do it. And not only can he do it, he also will do it. And any nation that refuses this uh, oath of loyalty will actually find all rainfall ceases over their land. That means their crops wither and die, and soon there's famine and all types of terror breaking out in the land. People are starving until they repent. Oh, verse 18 is an interesting verse. It deals with Egypt. Egypt will survive the tribulation. There'll be enough uh, believers in Egypt to actually get through. Verse 18. And if the family of Egypt go not up, and come not, that have no rain, there shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen, that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now why does he concentrate on the Egyptians here? Well, any of you who know anything about geography know why he should concentrate on Egypt. You see, Egypt is one of those few nations that doesn't need any rain. They are watered by the river Nile. And it's very interesting because you have Egypt here, you have the Sudan underneath, we don't know that this is going to be the arrangement in the millennium, but uh, then Ethiopia here, and the Nile flows from Ethiopia and Sudan through Egypt. Now, what does it mean? Well, if Egypt doesn't go up, as long as these two nations have been up, there'll still be a river Nile. And so Egypt's just laughing, you know, saying, well, it doesn't matter about us. We needn't go up if we don't want to. The river Nile is still going to keep flooding and we'll still be all right, you see. And so God thinks, just in case any one of you says that, well, listen, he says, if Egypt doesn't come up, they are going to get the plague instead. You see? 
and that's it. And that's a warning to any other nation that may have a private water source and doesn't need rain. So he covers every eventuality here. All right. I want to say one other thing. Um, we have here the Feast of Tabernacles. Do you know that in the millennium there are going to be other feasts kept? And do you know there will be animal sacrifice in the millennium? And if you don't, that will come as a revelation to you. If you do, it may cause you some uh, bit of problem. I think it causes a lot of Christians problems. So let's just concentrate on that. We won't read the passage, but you read it for yourself in the, the chapters Ezekiel 40 to 48. You'll find there they keep the Passover, for example. You'll find there that they have a sin offering. They have a burnt offering with animal sacrifice being involved. Now, <clears throat> why does this cause Christians problems? It causes Christians problems for this reason. That they think, well, now hold on. All the animal sacrifices pointed to Christ. Well, Jesus Christ has, has already come to the earth. He's actually on the earth. Why should we still keep the Passover? Because there's nothing more to look forward to. Jesus has already established the fact that he is king and all the rest. Well, they don't understand. Actually, the feasts of Israel not only looked forward to Christ, but they also looked back to a historical event. Did you know that? They did both. Let's take the Feast of Passover, for example. The Feast of Passover reminded the, Israeli, the Israelis every year that there was a day when the angel of death passed over them at the Exodus. And every year they were reminded of that when they took the lamb and they slaughtered it. But they also, of course, looked forward to Christ. And every other feast that they kept remembered some event in, uh, from the past and also looked forward to some event in the future. Now, when the sacrifices are kept in the millennium, they look back to the work that Christ has done. And they are the, a major means of evangelism on the earth. Remember, there are non-believers on the face of the earth. And they will see these feasts being kept. And every time a lamb is slaughtered, it will be the only killing done of animal life on the earth. They will suddenly realize what Jesus Christ has done for them. And they will have the claims of the gospel presented before their very eyes in a very gory way. But after all, in perfect, perfect environment, it's the only way to get over the gory details of the cross of Christ. And they'll use these feasts to preach the gospel. If they sin they will also have to have an animal sacrifice. Now, why? Because surely they can just ask God to forgive them, can't they? You know? Surely they don't have to have an animal sacrifice. Oh, yes, they do. Let's take an example of our society. Now, here you are. You're a born-again believer, right? And the police pull up and say, excuse me, sir, you were doing 506 miles an hour or whatever you were doing, you know, on this motorway. Didn't you know that the speed limit is 70? Oh, yes, I did. I'm sorry. I broke that law. And then you say, just hang on a minute, and you close your eyes, and <clears throat> you confess the sin to God. You know, you ask the Lord to forgive you. You claim 1 John 1, 9. Then you open them. And you say, thank you, officer, very much. Um, I have received forgiveness. Well, I don't think it's going to cut much ice with him, you know. He might say, well, that's very nice, buddy. 
you know, very nice indeed, but I'm terribly sorry whether you've been forgiven or not. You are going to pay this fine. Two pounds for every mile an hour you were over the speed limit. One thousand whatever pounds it's going to cost you, you see? But why is that so? And by the way, you as a Christian have got to pay up. Even though your sins be forgiven you, you've got to pay up on the fine. Why? Because, you see, not only do you have to get your sins forgiven before God, you have to satisfy the society you are living in. That is why von Ribbentrop, who was the man who had sent thousands of Jews to their death, when he'd been sentenced to death, and while he was waiting for the death sentence to be carried out, even though he received Christ as his personal saviour and had all his sins forgiven, he still had to be executed. You see? Because it's not only God that has to be satisfied, it is also society. And the Bible is very clear, it's not just him that's got to be satisfied, the laws of the land have to be obeyed as well. Now, in the millennium, the land is cleansed not through a fine, but through animal sacrifice. And so, having sought the law for forgiveness, you then have to go and appease society, as it were, through animal sacrifice. To, to again, show that you realise what breaking one of God's law, uh, just how serious breaking one of God's laws really is. Now, that's the push, do you see, behind the animal sacrifices um, in the millennium. And there it is. These are the rules of a theocracy, and under a theocracy, you don't pay a fine or anything like that. What you do, you have to um, go and slaughter an animal. It might interest you to know, by the way, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, they never sent people to jail. Never. They always fined them, or they had to do some sort of labor to make up to the victim, or they were actually put to death. You see? And I must say that I don't know which is the more cruel, putting a person to death so that they're with the Lord, you know, as far as Israel was concerned, or actually cooping them up like an animal for 30 years. I really don't know which is the more cruel as far as that's concerned. But that was the law as far as Israel was concerned. It's not the law as far as we are concerned. All right? So these are the, the type of things. Um, there was one crime that was worse than any other in Israel, and this crime is again worse than any other in the millennium. And this crime is the crime of idolatry. And we'll deal with it in just a moment, but actually, um, idolatry is a capital offence, both in Israel and in the millennium. There is the death penalty in the millennium. People really are put to death for committing certain crimes, but not every crime. And the Lord who is just is the one, of course, who administers uh, the sentence and actually says, this is the sentence that I will pass. Now, why is idolatry so bad? Well, I'll tell you why. In a theocracy where God is king, what is idolatry? It's treason. And you know, even in Britain, treason today is still a capital offence. You can still be hanged by the neck for plotting against the queen. And that's why in the Old Testament you read about all idolaters, put them to death. And why in the millennium you read, all idolaters put them to death. It is treason. They are plotting against the king who is established on the earth. In a theocracy, idolatry is treason and is a capital offence. Let's uh, see in Zechariah where that is clearly demonstrated. Go to Zechariah 13. By the way, idolatry is not a capital offence today. 
Could I just make that absolutely clear? All right, and uh, in chapter 13, beginning verse 2, we have here an unbeliever who is not just an unbeliever. You are permitted to have your own beliefs in these days. What you're not permitted to do is propagate them and let everyone know what your beliefs are. You see? If you do, it's treason. And here's a man who does. But first of all, verse 2, And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land. They shall be no more remembered. That means officially. They'll never be mentioned publicly again. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. And it shall come to pass that when any shall yet prophesy, here is a false prophet prophesying in the name of a false god, look what happens. Then his father and his mother that begat him shall say unto him, Thou shalt not live. Why do they say that? Because they love the Lord more than they love their children. This is unheard of today. I mean, this would be considered brutality. In the millennium, it's quite understandable. They love the Lord with all their hearts. They cannot tolerate treason against the king. Thou shalt not live, for thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord, and his father and his mother that begat him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. That's capital punishment. And do you know, by the way, in the Old Testament, that uh, if a man was witness to a crime, he was the man that carried out the sentence. So if it was a capital offence, and you were the witness, you had to pick up a stone and actually throw it at the chap. That was the way God dealt with people who wanted to give false witness. They had to look the man in the eyes and then chuck this stone at him, you know. All right, so there it is. The people who have seen the idolatry are the ones who carry out uh, the sentence. And it shall come to pass in that day that the prophet shall be ashamed every one of his vision when he has prophesied. Neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive. And in the old, the ancient world, they used to dress up in a particular way. Everyone knew, you know, that they were prophets. They used to wear sheepskin or something like that, or camel's hair garments. Everyone knew they were a prophet of a particular group, you see, in the way that today Hare Krishnas can be seen from miles away. You know, they really can, or heard tink, 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 you know. And when... uh, some people try and dress up as these prophets and make themselves known, they are challenged. Now in verse 5 we get the lie that they say. But he shall say, oh no, I'm not a prophet, he says, lying out of his back teeth. He says, I'm a husbandman, for man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. Oh no, I'm a cowman, that's why I'm dressed like this. These grubby old jeans, you know. No, no, I just work at the local farm. It's going to be a lie. But that's the type of thing that they will say. And verse 6 deals with the other tendency that religious people have, even today, and that is of scarring their bodies. You know, they always want to tattoo themselves and make marks on their bodies. And they wear garments to cover them up, but on their hands they can still be seen. And in verse 6, And someone shall say to him, What are these wounds in thine hand? I think you're an idolater. If not, what are these marks that you've got all over your hands? Then he shall answer, those which I was wounded in the house of my friends. My friends means, of course, my beloved ones, referring to his parents, actually. Oh, well, my parents were such disciplinarians, they scarred me as they were disciplining me. And then they're going to remove the rest of his clothes and they'll find these tattoo marks and everything all over his body. And they will know he's an idolater. 
and as such he's committed treason, he'll be put to death in the millennium. You see? These are some of the laws. These are the laws of a theocracy. All right, God will judge among his people. That's how he will judge. He'll have certain other laws that aren't given to us. Let's go back then to Micah and uh, chapter 4. Sorry if it's a bit bloodthirsty today, but there we are. It's all in the Bible. All right, and talking about being all in the Bible, we've all now got to come to verse 3 and the second half. You'll have heard this verse already. It's a very much quoted verse. Every pacifist, every uh, person who supports nuclear disarmament and all forms of disarmament, they sooner or later quote this particular passage. I'll just read it through. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. Now, they've got swords which are used for warfare. Oh, no, no, don't use them for warfare. Instead, make plows out of them, you see? And uh, go and dig up some field with these things. And their spears into pruning hooks. These are sort of scythes, and you used to prune the trees with them. So take your spears, make them into scythes, and get on with agricultural pursuit. Nation shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Sooner or later, you'll hear people quoting that particular verse. People love to quote the Bible. They're always quoting the Bible. They love to do it. Um, by the way, Mr. Steele, liberal leader, he quoted the Bible in one of the debates in the House of Commons just a couple of weeks ago. No one challenged him because probably no one understood what else the Bible says along that particular line. But he quoted a bit of the Bible. And that's why he'll be receiving a letter from me in a couple of days' time. <laughs> because, uh, you know, if he's really logical about this, he has shown himself up to be a despicable type of man. Uh, no one has challenged him as far as I know. People love to quote the Bible whether they take the verse out of context or not. You know, vegetarians do this. Right? You'll always find them on the radio, oh, we shouldn't be eating meat. You definitely you shouldn't be eating meat. Even the Bible says it. You know, and they quote from Genesis 1, where Adam was told, you're allowed to eat all the vegetables, and that's it. There we are. Now, it's in the Bible. There it is. Must be right. But they forget that in Genesis 9, after the flood, he was then told he could eat meat. They didn't know that was in the Bible. Oh, dear. Oh, well, the Bible's full of contradictions. Why did I quote it in the first place? That's the type of attitude. I think the worst example, by the way, is in the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. Very famous, uh, very illustrious university in the States. They thought, wouldn't it be nice if we could have a nice quotation from the Bible expressing our aims in this place? on the wall of the dining hall, so that as people are eating, they can gaze at this thing from the Bible and realize that even God has this desire for them. And so they decided to search around and find a scripture, and they found one. Marvelous. <laughs> Do you know what it says? It's a wonderful quotation, this. It says, And ye shall be as God, knowing good and evil. Isn't that lovely? That's a, that's a direct quotation from the Bible. Right? Your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good from evil. It's a quotation from the Bible. Wonderful. Yes, great. Where's it from? It's Genesis 3. It's the words that the devil said to Eve. But it's from the Bible. It's on the wall. Fantastic. So every day as you sit down to your spaghetti bolognese and all the rest, you have to read what the devil said to Eve every single day. 
Amazing. They don't believe the rest of it, you know, but that just is very convenient. And that's why this particular verse is always quoted. Out of context, they don't care about the context, and confuse me with the facts. This is what the Bible says. I've read it. You know, I don't know where I read it, I just read it. You know? Uh, when I was in New York, I actually sat in a little garden, some of you will have been there, opposite the United Nations building, and this scripture from Micah 4 is inscribed in the wall. It's the aim of the UN, you see. All right, well, it looks good, doesn't it? Let me show you another verse, can I? Keep your finger in the place and turn to the book of Joel, which is just after Hosea, which is just after Daniel. Joel chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. Verse 10 looks familiar, but are you sure Joel didn't get it wrong? Let's read verse 9. This is in the Bible as well. Funny, isn't it? Right, Joel, chapter 3, verse 9. Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles. Prepare war, wake up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them all come up, and verse 10, beat your plowshares into swords. Amazing. Oh, no, sure. No, it's a copious error, isn't it? Must be. No, it's not. Beat your plowshares into saws and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say I'm wrong. Assemble yourselves and all the rest. And here is a call from God to the nation of Israel to come out, arm itself, and get fighting. Well, isn't this amazing? What are we to make of this? Let me tell you what we're to make of this. The only time that there is going to be universal peace and disarmament in this world is when Jesus Christ is reigning in Jerusalem. And that is why Isaiah 2 and Micah 4 are dealing with these millennial passages when the Lord's reigning. And let me tell you this, when the Lord's reigning, you can afford to give away all your armaments. He'll fight for you. No one is going to attack you. He will fight. But what's the general rule? The general rule given in the Bible is this. The Lord says, you're living in the midst of an evil generation. You are fallen humanity. And he says, there's only one way to stop fallen humanity. You've got to be able to hit back. Right? That's it. And that's why, you know, when Joshua went into the land of Israel, they didn't come in all meek and gentle. They came in as an army and they were armed to the teeth. You see? And Joshua met the Lord Jesus Christ himself and he says, I'm the captain of this army. You'll go in and defeat that place. And then they went. That's why in Exodus 15.3 it says, the Lord is a God of war. You see? You'll find all these references right the way down. That's why in Nehemiah's day, when they were building the temple, what did God say to them? Oh, just be nice to everyone. Be a good example to everyone. What are you doing? He didn't. They actually had to build that wall with a weapon in one hand. And by the way, not a weapon, just say, I'm armed. Don't you come near. Oh, I didn't think you'd come near. Why have you spoilt this facade? All right, I give in. It wasn't that at all, you see. They were there ready to fight. And this is the odd thing. When you're dealing with fallen humanity, you have to be strong in this fallen world until the Lord comes. Otherwise, other nations which are also fallen are going to rob you of your freedom. And can I emphasize this? I assure you, 
If Britain lays down its arms, the Russians will be laughing all the way to their piggy banks. They will. Because they will, sooner or later, be able to take over this country and let me just define it for you in case you think this is all pie in the sky the first people in prison will be Bible-believing Christians and I'm talking to all of you right? it is your liberty and your children's liberty that will be put at stake they will not countenance the preaching of the word of truth because it's the only thing that can oppose them absolutely you see? Now, we've got to be aware of any false doctrine. Let me tell you this. The people who want nuclear disarmament and all the rest, they're not terribly evil people. No, not at all. They just happen to believe something we do not believe. They believe man's good. They believe that all men are good. That man doesn't need a saviour. That he can actually solve all his own problems. And so, you see, well, why don't we let our nice side show? And when we're nice, they're nice too, you know? And then they'll say, oh, Britain, you're wonderful. You've laid down all your arms. And so, well, that convinces us. Okay, Kremlin, we're going to just stop all our armaments, you know? That's the type of thinking behind these people. But it's not true. You can't hold that type of opinion and be a Bible believer. You cannot do it, do you see? And that's why the Bible says you've got to be strong. And isn't it Macmillan, you know, who I think is a lovely believer? He got it just right. He said, you know, aren't nuclear weapons horrible? Yes, they are. And isn't it wonderful to know Jesus is in control of the earth? Otherwise, we'd all be living very worried lives. He said, they're terrible weapons. He said, but what a paradox. The worst weapons that we've ever had have given this country the longest period of peace we've ever had. Do you know 35 years is the longest period of peace Britain has ever had in its history? Isn't that staggering? And all you young men, do you know we are about the first or only the second generation that could have had so many young men gathered in a hall like this? For young men have been from Britain have been butchered in war. They've been slaughtered, you know, in our nation for the last few hundred years. It's only now. Why has it happened? I'll tell you why. Because even if we've got the, the capacity just to knock out Moscow, the Russians are not prepared to sacrifice Moscow. The result is, they do not invade. What an odd paradox this is. And yet it's part of the, um, <coughs> the, the whole picture of fallen humanity. Every single Christian wants peace. Of course we do. But we're not going to get peace on the world's terms. Peace is coming when Jesus Christ is coming. And let me just show you one thing. The CND campaign, to which my wife used to belong, she was on the Aldermaster marches and everything else, she's changed her mind quite a bit since then. <laughs> right? There's no warfare in our house about this. <clears throat> but uh, she'll tell you, and you know for yourselves, that the symbol they use is a witchcraft symbol. And do you know what it is? It's a circle with a broken cross inside. Instead of the cross having arms extending on either side, the two arms have dropped off and they're leaning against the bottom. And that's what it is. And that's why whatever campaign comes our way, don't take it on face value. You see, the old sin nature has a very good side to it. Oh, it's very nice, got a nice human face. The question is, is it realistic in biblical terms? 
you know? Why are animals becoming extinct left, right and centre? Why? Because of the fall of man. It's man's fault that this has happened. Well, what's the answer? The answer doesn't lie with man, it lies in the man, Christ Jesus. And our effort has got to be put in to preaching the gospel and preaching the gospel and preaching what is right as far as our society is concerned. The, at the moment, the battle for our freedoms is on and we must make sure that our prayers are directed in the right quarters. This does not mean to say we've got to pray war into existence. What we've got to pray is the deterrent against war into existence. And that only comes through national strength. The Bible demands every nation is strong, you see? All right, well, there's, a, there's quite a bit to chew on. So let's go back now to Micah 4, or sorry, onwards to Micah 4. And you see, in verse 3, that last section, what are they doing? Don't, it's saying here, don't let's spend our money on armaments, but let's use all the money that's been wasted on armaments to put into agriculture. Doesn't it sound familiar? Don't waste, no, don't spend 5,000 million pounds on the Trident system. No, put it into industry. Great, and then you'll have a wonderful industry booming and all the Christians locked up in prison. Well, it sounds like the millennium to some people, that does, with every Christian in prison. Wonderful. Well, we'd soon know who our friends were in that particular situation, wouldn't we? This peace, this universal peace, comes when Christ establishes his throne. And it's only when you take the Bible in context that you understand a verse like that. Yes, there will be peace. Men will make war no more because Jesus is Lord of the earth and we'll be there to see the day and we'll be praising God. All right, verse 4 then. But they shall sit every man under his vine. Every man will have his own vine, you know. Lovely private property. In the millennium, you know, not all owned by the state or anything. Every man will own his own vine. And under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. For all people will walk, every one in the name of his God. There are unbelievers. You see, they'll walk in the name of, of their God. As long as they don't practice it, as long as they don't put up any idols, okay. And we will walk, the believers will walk, in the name of the Lord our God, forever and ever. Now, there's the type of society. You imagine perfect environment, peace, security, prosperity, right? It's going to be absolutely wonderful. I think we would say there's a chicken in every pot, except, of course, we won't be eating meat in those days. You see, and probably the earth won't be eating meat. But there we are. Every man will have sufficient food, perfect health. It will be absolutely thrilling. The only people who will die young are those who've broken God's law. That's why in Isaiah 65 last time, we saw that any man who dies under a hundred, he'll be called accursed. You know, he must be a sinner. You know, God's had to uh, execute him, put him to death. There it is. It's going to be perfect environment. Happiness on every side, even though there are unbelievers. But we haven't finished. Something dramatic happens at the very end of the millennium. Something that is so stunning we find it hard to believe. Let's turn then, and we'll end in this passage tonight, in Revelation 20, Revelation chapter 20, and let's see something that's incredible. Do you remember that at the beginning of the millennium, Satan was locked up and bound for 1,000 years? Well, at the end of the millennium, after the 1,000 years, Satan is released from his prison. 
most dramatic. And do you know this is one of the most important events that will occur around the millennium? Let's just see that, by the way, in Revelation 20 and verse 3. Revelation 20, verse 3. And this angel cast him into the bottomless pit, this is before the millennium, and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. So after the millennium, Satan's led out again. Down to verse 7, and we see it. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, rulers and leaders, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. Now let's stop there. You imagine it. These people have been living in absolute prosperity. They've had wonderful environment, and yet the moment Satan's let out, they all run, desert the Lord who's in Jerusalem, and they flee onto Satan's side to rebel against the Lord. This is staggering. But it's vitally important. Why is Satan now released? I'll tell you. There are two main reasons. Through the release of Satan here, the Lord deals with two lies that are current in our own society. These are two lies that a lot of Christians believe. Let me tell you what the two lies are. They're false. One is, well, if every person could see the Lord, they'd all be saved. Yes, they would. That's what some people believe. But Lord, if they could just see your healing power, you know, if they could just see you do miracles or see you, you know, know you're risen from the dead, why, appear in white garments, why don't you do it, Lord? They'd all be saved. No, they wouldn't. No, they wouldn't. That's why uh, Abraham said to the rich man, do you remember in Luke 16? He said, even if a man does return from the dead, they still won't believe. No, they won't. And you know, if you believe that, what you're actually saying is, God, you're unfair. You see, these people are not saved because you haven't given them enough information. Why don't you do something, God, just to demonstrate to them, you know, that you're alive? It's not true. In the millennium here, these people see God. They have full access to him at any time they want. Do they believe? They do not believe. No. What's the second lie? The second lie is one that was propagated quite a bit a few years ago. The reason people are bad is because, you see, well, it's, it's because they don't have enough to eat. It's because their houses aren't good enough. They haven't got enough entertainment, you know, unemployment or something like that. That's why it's, they're bad. Do you know if everyone had a full stomach, nice clothes to put on, a nice wife, holidays, you know, in Brixton or wherever, <laughs> you know? If they only had these wonderful things, why? There'd be no problem. There'd be no vandalism, there'd be no crime and all the rest. It's not true. What happens in the millennium? After 1,000 years, a perfect environment, they still reject the Lord Jesus Christ, having had everything. I heard an old lady, she must have been 90. She said, 1915, she said, we used to think if everyone had enough to eat and loads of clothes and you know, good, good upbringing, good education, there'd be no vandalism. She said, but I've lived long enough now to see that come about. She says, I see children with enough to eat. I see them with nice conditions, with television, absolutely giving them entertainment 
Well, much more entertainment than we ever had, she said. And still they're wrong. Still they're evil. They've never been worse. She says, I think we must be wrong somewhere. They sure were. Man is evil not because of his condition. Not because of what's on the outside. He's evil because of what's inside him. That is the fall. And until that is fully faced up to, we can get absolutely nowhere. And this is why fundamentalists like ourselves know it's the preaching of the Word of God that deals with the problems of mankind. It's the preaching of the truth about Jesus Christ. That man is fallen. That people don't believe because they don't want to believe. Not because they haven't heard, they have heard. No, it's on the inside that the problem is. And here at the very end it's proved. For they flock to Satan. They are, look what it says right at the end, the number of whom is as of the sand of the sea. In other words, they're in the majority. After all of this, they still want Satan and still want his corruption and still want his ways. And with that dramatic act, the end of the millennium comes. And look what happens, verse 9. They went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And God doesn't do anything he immediately moves into judgment. And look what happens there. No signs or anything. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And then they are ready for judgment. The end of the story? No. This is the beginning of the story. And can I tell you this? Many believers think the millennium is the future. The millennium is not the future. The eternal state is the future. And if you've been pinning your hope on the millennium as your future, you've got it all wrong. The millennium is only a thousand years. It's going to come to an end. Oh, you wait until next time, till we get on to the, <laughs> to the glories that are going to be ours in the eternal state. We're going to see things, I don't know how John could have written them. He wrote what he could, but it's quite obvious. He was lost absolutely for words. Next time, beloved, we're not on the millennium anymore. We're going to see the glory and the wonder of the eternal state. God bless you. Amen.